0: Good morning. morning. Today, we are going to be reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Numbers, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people did. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came to Moses, excuse me, before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning nor break any of its bones according to the statute for the Passover. They shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the last month uh, and stretching into the next year, what we've been doing is reading the Bible together from cover to cover. And we've been preaching through the Bible, not all of it, but we're trying to take one passage, one story, one event, one narrative from every um, portion that we've read over the week and we're preaching on that. And so today we've been reading, or this week I should say, we've been reading in Numbers and we came across this passage in Numbers about the people of God keeping the Passover. And this is one of those themes that is very near to the heart of God. It's at the very heart of the scriptures and the unfolding of God's drama of redemption. This, this is a thread, this Passover. It's a thread that if you, if you start to pull on it, you'll find that it runs all the way throughout the scriptures. And so it is exceedingly important and if you understand what's going on here in the passover then you'll understand a theme that's at the heart of the bible and more importantly a theme that's at the very heart of god himself so in order to understand what this passover meal is what's happening in this passover meal uh in numbers 9 we need to go back to the first passover meal which occurred when the people of god were still enslaved in egypt and you'll recall that God had, the, going back even further, that God had raised up Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, where they lived as a nation of enslaved people. And God did this by sending these awful judgments and plagues upon the people. And they kept coming over and over because Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people of God go at the word of Moses. So... Nine plagues in, we see this very interesting phenomenon. When the Lord sent these judgments, whether it was locusts or flies or frogs or blood in the water, whatever it was, none of those plagues fell upon his own people. They only fell upon the Egyptians. And this was proof that Israel's God was going to fight for them, was going to care for them. In essence, for the first nine plagues, God just kind of aimed away from his people and protected them that way. And the judgments fell upon the Egyptians alone. But here's where it gets interesting. In the 10th plague, the final plague, Something altogether different was going to occur. God tells Moses that he is going to visit the whole land in judgment and that the form of that judgment would be the death of all the firstborn in the land. And in this plague, there would be no distinction between God's people and the Egyptians. This plague would fall upon all the people in the land, regardless of who they were. But the astonishing thing is that God tells his people that although the angel of death will indeed come through the land and destroy all the firstborn of the land without distinction, he gives them instructions on how to protect themselves from this judgment. And we see that in Exodus chapter 12. It gives, God gives them instructions to for each household to kill a lamb without blemish. And then we pick up the story in Exodus 12 verse 7. It says... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. Keep that in mind. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So, God's judgment will visit all on the land, all in the land, except those who are sheltered under the shed blood of the Passover lamb. And sure enough, God keeps his promise, and he visits the land that night in terrible judgment. And when the morning dawn dawned, the only ones who were spared from that judgment were the ones who were sheltered under the shed blood of the Passover lamb. Now. There are four very important things to notice here. Don't miss these. Four very important things. Number one, the blood of the lamb kept the people safe. That's number one. The blood of the lamb kept the people safe. God's people were not spared. Listen, God's people were not spared from this awful judgment because of divine favoritism or luck It was belief in the provision of God that spared them. It was the blood that made all the difference between those who woke up with dead folks in their house and those who did not. The blood made all the difference. So the first thing, the blood of the lamb kept the people safe. Second, the blood achieved satisfaction, or the biblical word is propitiation. God entered Egypt in judgment, but when he saw the blood, he passed over those houses in peace. And the thing is, the people who were sheltered in the houses with the blood, it's not as if they had any more righteous standing than the Egyptians. I mean, we talked about Mount Sinai a few weeks ago, um, and like we can see how flimsy their righteousness was. All it took was Moses being up on the mountain for a few weeks, and they're like, We're abandoning this whole thing. Make us gods. We're going to go after them. So it wasn't as though they had more righteousness than the Egyptians. When God saw the blood, he was satisfied, not because of their righteousness, but because of the blood and when he saw the blood, there was no case he could bring against them. So he passed over in peace. Third, the blood achieved equivalence in substitution. Equivalence in substitution. So earlier in Exodus 12, uh, before the part where we read, God gives the people explicit instructions on what kind of lamb they were to choose for this sacrifice, The lamb had to be chosen, it tells us in verse 4, according to each man's need. In other words, they were to choose a lamb that was either big enough or small enough to feed the family, right? They sacrificed it, they roasted it, and then they ate it. It was, it was only to be enough for the family, but it was just an estimate, right? Because what we read in our passage there was that if there was anything left over, you burn it. Don't let it remain till morning, you burn it. It's done, it's gone. So this is to say that the substitution of the lamb was the exact equivalent of each person's need. And so in Exodus 12, 30, the morning after the judgment occurred, it says, listen, I mean, this is amazing. It says, there was not a house in all of Egypt in which someone was not dead. All of Egypt in which someone was not dead. But here's the astonishing thing. In the houses of the Egyptians, it was their firstborn sons who were dead. But in the houses of the people of Israel, it was the body of a lamb that lay dead. There is no clearer distinction between God's people and the Egyptians. Death came to every household that night but in the houses of God's people, a substitute died instead. But also note that the lamb that they had chosen, according to Exodus 12, had to be without blemish, had to be perfect. what we see here and in Leviticus, perfectly plain, only the perfect is eligible to bear the sins of another. The blood achieved salvation. The blood achieved salvation. Alec Mateer wrote this magnificent book and he says, Before the Passover, the Israelites could not leave Egypt. After the Passover, they could not stay. Something changed materially in who they were and changed materially in their situation. Before the Passover, the people were slaves. After the Passover, they were liberated. They were dressed for the road and ready to walk with God. And so all of that, those four things, occurred on the night of the Passover. And so now we have enough context to pick up our story in Numbers chapter 9. Here, once again, the people of God are to keep this Passover meal in remembrance of that first Passover and on the night when God delivered his people out of the house of slavery by the death of another. And the question, I don't know if you heard it when I read it before, the question arises whether or not certain people are eligible to keep the Passover. Did you hear it? It's, it's in verses 6. This is Numbers chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It says, And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. Verse 7, And those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait, wait that I may hear what the Lord is commanding concerning you. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, he shall keep it. You shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention or maybe a slip by. This is a very easy detail to miss. The Passover proper is kept on the first, in the first month, the 14th day of the first month. These people are ineligible because of uncleanness. They say, What do we do? Why are we prevented from offering the sacrifice of the Lord? The Lord tells Moses, fine. Those people may keep it in the second month. You see that? Okay, so hold on to that for a second. Now, if you've been reading through Leviticus, um, God bless you, you'll recall that ritual uncleanness, if you've read through Leviticus, you have more than your fair share of education on what is clean and what is unclean. But ritual uncleanness disqualified a person from two things. Number one, fellowship with the congregation, they had to be separated from the congregation. And number two, from drawing near to the Lord in, holy, in, in, in all of his holiness. So cut off from the congregation and could not draw near to the Lord if they were ceremonially unclean. And furthermore, if you've read Leviticus, you'll remember that there are like, I mean, I don't know how many, I'm sure somebody's counted them. I haven't counted them. But a myriad of ways through which a person could become unclean, both intentionally and unintentionally. It's astonishing. And so these men who had recently touched a dead body and were made unclean by it and were thus ineligible to participate in the congregational Passover, God grants them a special dispensation. He says, if a person finds himself ceremonially unclean during the Passover, he can keep it the next month. She can keep it the next month. This is how important the keeping of the Passover was to God. He provided a secondary Passover for anyone who could not keep the primary one. I mean, from God's perspective, the people must remember those four things that occurred on the Passover. The people must remember the safety of the blood. The people must remember the substitution of the blood. The people must remember the satisfaction of the blood. And the people must remember, they must never forget the salvation of the blood. To forget that is to forget everything. But then look how this passage ends in Numbers chapter 9, verse 13. But if anyone who is clean, okay, not not, not not unclean, clean. If anyone who is clean and is not on a journey, not not out of town, far away, if anyone's clean, not on a journey, and fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at the appointed time that man shall bear his sin the only people accepted from keeping the Passover are those who are ceremonially unclean stick with me stick with me here but apparently there must have been a temptation we're not told exactly how or why or under what conditions, but there must have been a temptation for those who were not disqualified, which is to say clean, to forego the celebration of the Passover. We only are, we, all we're told is that there's a possibility that someone who is clean might not come to the celebration, might not offer the Lord's offering. And the judgment on that person is devastating. Did you hear it? They don't get the option of the secondary Passover. That person shall be cut off from his people and bear his or her own sin. Think about that. Like by abstaining from the Passover feast, a person is rejecting his or her identity in God's covenant people, the very ones he saved from Egypt, and he or she is declaring by that act that no substitution is necessary for the atonement of their sin. It's as if they're saying, let the angel of death visit me. Let judgment come upon the land. I will be safe in my own merits. Now, let's just keep moving. The people keep this passover and when they enter the promised land in joshua they keep it again and that's the last time for very many years long long time that they observe this most precious of days to god now there is some evidence that possibly they kept it during the time of samuel but but there's a long time between joshua and samuel And there's a much longer time between Samuel and the next time they kept it. They forsook the Passover of the Lord. Eventually, they rejected this celebration, this offering, this remembrance altogether. And in doing so, they were proclaiming, even if they didn't know they were proclaiming, that they were capable of bearing their own sin. No substitution necessary for us. You see that? You you see? Okay. Okay. I probably don't have to tell you the history of God's people from the time they entered the promised land through the period of kings. It was pretty bleak. There were a few bright spots, but for the most part, that section of the story is basically the story of the people's persistent and ongoing rejection of the law of God and the ordinances of God, especially the Passover. Hundreds of years went by, and there was no remembrance of God's saving provision of the substitutionary lamb. Now, during the reign of Hezekiah, he reinstituted the Passover. That was a bright spot. There's no doubt about that. But again, it fell out of practice for a long time. Then during the reign of Josiah, one of his people found the book of the law, (coughs) brought it out of its cobwebs and found that they were dangerously close to judgment because they had failed to keep the Passover among other things. And so they keep it. But the judgment was already at hand. For hundreds of generations, the people had rejected the law of God, and by doing so, had communicated to God that they were capable of bearing their own sin. And so at long last, God kept his word and allowed them to bear the weight of their own sin. The Babylonians and the Assyrians came pouring over the hills, killed huge portions of the population, dragged others off into exile, burned the temple, God's own temple, to the very ground. And this is the picture that we have of God's people when they ask to bear their own sin. They sit by the banks of the Euphrates River with their harps and their lyres hanging on the trees, and they're weeping their eyes out. What have we done? But eventually people are permitted to return to their land. And of course, I mean, they're, they're not eager to repeat those sins that earned them their judgment. And so beginning with Ezra, the priest, the people keep the Passover, and they continue to do so throughout the intertestamental period, the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. They keep doing it. Additionally, certain factions become so obsessive about the ceremonial laws during this period, and they heap up their own laws upon the laws of God to make absolutely sure that they are never brought under God's judgment again. Like, okay, here's the, the ceremonial laws right here. Let's just fence that off with a few of our own things so that we never even come close to breaking it because they know what happened. They know about the exile. They know about the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So by the time that Jesus shows up, the most religious of them, Pharisees, the Sadducees, they have two very strong convictions. Number one, we will always be clean ritually clean. That's what these walls are for. We will always be clean. Number two, we will never forsake God's law, especially the Passover. I mean, if there was anyone who was clean and who would not keep the Passover, it's not going to be us. Which is why it's extremely distressing to them when Jesus shows up saying things like the following in Mark chapter seven, verse 14. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Like, do you hear what he's saying right here? Remember what clean and unclean means. To be unclean means to be cut off from the people of God, ineligible to commune with the Lord. And in Leviticus, everything that made you unclean was outside of you, external. It was the eating of certain foods or to have certain afflictions on your skin, or, but by touching something unclean. And when that happened, the uncleanness of that thing was transferred onto you. That was, that was the direction of the motion. The unclean thing transferred its uncleanness onto you. And it seems like the people have this, people today anyway, seem to have this idea that Jesus came to kind of soften up the law, make sure everybody's happy, you know. That's not what he's doing here. That is, if anything, he's cranking up the heat. He's intensifying the law. Like, To all those who become so fastidious in keeping themselves clean, he says, here's what you don't understand. The real uncleanness resides in your heart and no amount of external law keeping can wash you of that defilement. In other words, if ceremonial cleanness is required for inclusion in the congregation and for communion with God, there was no hope for these people nor for anyone. They would have to bear their own sin. But there's, there's evidence in Jesus' ministry that some, some kind of strange reversal was beginning to occur. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus encounters a leper. Do you remember this? He encounters a leper. And remember that leprosy, according to Leviticus, is one of those conditions that would make a person unclean, cut off. Watch what happens. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. (sighs) Now, According to the law, if anyone touched a leper, the uncleanness of the leper would be transferred onto that person. And that person, along with the leper, would be cut off. But that's not what happened here. Jesus touches the leper and the exact opposite occurs. The cleanness, the ceremonial cleanness, the ritual cleanness of Jesus transfers to the leper. Do you see that? But then notice what happens. Um, If you remember the story, Jesus tells the man who has just been made clean of his disease to go rejoin the people now. You may go, be in the congregation of God. And furthermore, Jesus commands him, but when you get there, don't say anything about this. Don't tell them about what I did for you. That's a whole other thing. But that's what he says. But the man, apparently overcome with joy, or we were not told why, he goes around telling everyone what Jesus did for him. And then in verse 45, it says, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Like, don't miss what happened there. A reversal has taken place. Before this encounter, the leper was consigned to the desolate places because of his uncleanness. But now, Jesus is confined to the desolate places. So what's going on here? What's going on is this. God gave the people a meal in Exodus by which they could constantly rehearse the salvation of God that he worked on their behalf. To forsake this meal was to forsake the very salvation of God. It was the blood that made all the difference. And because uncleanness was a condition that made the people uneligible to participate in this meal, God gave them a second chance to keep it in the next month. Back in Numbers, you remember? The people forsook this meal and the second chance and decided they wanted to bear their own sin. And so they did in the exile. And now they are working in this time where Jesus is, they are working as hard as they can to remain clean in God's sight so that they will never have to bear that again. And Jesus comes to them and says, no matter how hard you try, you will never be clean in God's sight Because the source, your heart, is polluted. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, I mean, (laughs) when he saw Jesus for the first time, do you remember what he said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. In that magnificent phrase, we see that God is inaugurating a new era in his redemptive story. More to the point, we see that in the arrival of Jesus, God has come to keep his own Passover. No longer Well, the people keep the Passover. They cannot do it. They are unclean. No matter how hard they work, they cannot bring themselves back into cleanness and therefore into eligibility for communion with God. And so God comes to keep his own Passover. And John recognizes it it and says, look, it's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And on the night before Jesus' death, here's what we see. In Luke chapter 24, verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus gets up from that table, goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was arrested. The next day, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was slain. And as he hung there in the heat of that Mediterranean sun, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the sky above grew black and we see that Christ himself became unclean. He was utterly forsaken, cut off from the people, cut off from communion with God and cast out. And because this event was cast in the mold of the Passover, here's what we know. In the shed blood of Christ, we have found our ultimate safety. The wrath of God for sin was poured out upon Christ. And for all who shelter themselves under his shed blood, we are kept safe from that judgment. In the shed blood of Christ, God has found his own satisfaction for our uncleanness and our sin. And one day when he visits the world in judgment, as he promised that he would... He will look upon those who have sheltered themselves under the shed blood of Jesus and find that he has no case to bring against them. He will pass over them and say, peace be unto you. In the shed blood of Jesus, we behold our substitution. Only the perfect can bear the sins of another. And in Jesus, the full measure of our judgment for sin was paid for in his perfect offering. And furthermore, his offering was the perfect measure according to our exact need. Nothing was left out of it. There there is no part of our sin, no part of our uncleanness, which the blood is not sufficient to cover. And finally, in the shed blood of Christ, we behold our salvation. Before this Passover, we were dead in our sins and hopelessly unclean. After this Passover, his cleanness was transferred to us and our uncleanness was transferred to him and we were dressed in the garments of salvation for communion with God. So, because... God kept his own Passover on our behalf. He offered up his own lamb to be slain. We have now been made clean and come into the very household of God as beloved sons and daughters. And one day, Christ will return. He said he would. And he does not lie. He will return. And it is written that in that day he will inaugurate a feast on the mountain of God, a feast of well-aged wine and the richest of food. And in that day, John tells us in Revelation, a great song will rise up from the lips of the redeemed, and it goes like this. Worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. (laughs) Amen and amen. We come to the table now. Would that we could physically come to the table But we come in our hearts, and as we eat and drink, this is one of the things that we do. That is that is so astonishingly simple that we can mistake it. We can mistake the incredible grace that is being bestowed to us. These these elements, as I often tell you, they're not magic. They don't don't have any magical properties. They're not a talisman or anything like that. But they do convey real grace because Jesus told us to take this meal. And when we do so in remembrance of him, when we do so in obedience to his command, when we do so remembering the safety that he provided for us in his shed blood, the salvation, the substitution, when we do that, real grace is conveyed. So brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, you may eat and you may drink. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.